Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the show that reflects on the events that made us who we are now. Today, I'm chatting to Rick Astley. My dream became my life, as it were, and it wasn't the dream I thought it was. It was just kind of like, what the hell is this, you know? I was kind of almost chasing my tail all the time, like trying to find out how do I fit into it? And yet everyone thought I was the person at the front of it. And I was. I even think it's not a very kind word to say control because it feels like people were controlling me. They weren't. They were just laying down the path for me. Do you know what I mean? I just walked down it. And I think I don't really do that anymore. I kind of like, I'm... I'm sort of putting the bricks in the road for myself to walk down, which I really love. It's been 36 years since Rick first shot to fame and now he's back making music. And if you saw his Glastonbury set earlier this year, you could happily say he's back with more energy than ever and even better suits. That Glastonbury set was absolute pure joy. He performed all the classics, of course, And it was really interesting to hear in this chat how he feels about those songs, Never Gonna Give You Up, Together Forever, Now. But he also performed a really euphoric set of songs by the Smiths with the brilliant band Blossoms too. We talk about that. As you're hearing this conversation, he's basically just doing all the cool stuff that he wants to do now, which is just the best way to live life. There's real beauty in letting go and not having your life completely mapped out for you. Just following your heart and instincts in whatever direction they lead you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, here you go then. This is the show. How you doing? I'm good, actually. I am good. Um, I feel. Um, how do I feel? I feel good and optimistic. We just we just did a couple of festivals this weekend, and sometimes it can be a bit daunting being 57 years old and seeing lots of kids in the audience and a mass different than the other, and both of them were absolutely brilliant. So I've had my batteries refilled. I think this weekend. So that that's so cool. Mm. I mean, you mentioned there, like obviously you've got all these different generations now into your music and you truly have because when I talk my kids are off school for the summer at the moment Mm -hmm. and they're down the park right now but my son was like can I come back and meet Rick because they've been singing never gonna give you up as their end of year song in school madness and and listen I don't I don't ever take that for granted and I don't fool myself that I now have a young audience you know I've got an old audience if I've got an audience at all they're my age but but I know when I go to festivals, that's that's a whole mixed bag of everything. And I think what's been proved over the last couple of years, and obviously we got to do Glastonbury this year, which is the biggest one, and it's kind of nuts, is you look out and you go, okay, that's just everything and everybody. That's just everything and everybody. Um, and yeah, they might have come to see whoever, whatever, but festivals do things to people. It's really, really weird. Um, 
And I, I, I experienced that a tiny bit at Glastonbury, but I didn't really get to see many bands, to be honest, because I was too busy doing my own thing and, you know, fretting. Um, <laughs> but um, um, but it did make me, when I, when I, when I, I went to see The Hives, because I really like them. I love I've, The I've Hives. Always, I'm a closet rocker, really, but, you know. And I saw Texas, I'm friends with Charlene, and, and I love Texas anyway. I think just a really great songwriting team and everything. And I went to see them, and I was kind of just taking notes, really because she was amazing with the audience. And I kept looking at the audience going, some of these kids are just too young to know every word of this, but they do. Yeah. And I, and and it reminds me sometimes when I see somebody else doing it more than doing my own set, to just go, just lap it up, enjoy it. If they know the words, great, enjoy that. Don't don't think about it too much, just get involved, you know. I mean, you said you were busy at Glastonbury. You were yeah. super busy because you did several things. We did several things, yeah, yeah. But I, <laughs> I, I was really lucky as well. I got to do some pieces with the BBC. They, like, followed me around. And, you know, because I'd, I'd been to Glastonbury to drop our daughter off many times, but never been in and been to Glastonbury, never mind played at it. And on the pyramid so, stage. Oh, my God. Yeah, so so it's pretty bonkers, that, yeah. And when, when, the first, when it first came around, it was before uh, COVID. So it obviously, you know, nobody played Glastonbury. And then I kind of thought, you know what, they're not going to ask again. So when they did, it was pretty amazing. And I kind of thought, I know what's going to happen. They're going to say, look, we'd love you back, but we're going to have to stick you over here and you're going to have to play on this stage over here, which would be great anyway. But no, they said, no, we still want you back and we still want you on Pyramid. I'm like, yep. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, and you were wearing a amazing. sick suit. It was an amazing set. And you played with Blossoms. We did, yeah, which is just a whole mad universe in itself. I don't know whether you've met those guys or not. Lovely. Yeah, really nice guys. I've been on their podcast as well, actually. Oh, right, They're okay. Really well, that, good chaps. Well, that's how we cemented our kind of like um, friendship, I guess, because oh, right. we, we got talking about bands from Manchester and influences from Manchester and that whole thing, because obviously they're from Stockport. Yeah. And um, obviously that Smith thing is a bit weird, and I know it's probably something we shouldn't do on the one end. Nobody should touch it. But I also think we're not doing it from any sense other than that we just love those tunes. And we got into a conversation about it. And I said, well, I've got this weird... I've had a few alternate headspace universes in my life where I sort of thought, I'd really love to just do that. And it's not a career move. I just want to do it. And one of them has always been to sing Smith songs. Um, I was a bit of a Smith freak when I was a kid. And one of my older brothers was, and he kind of introduced me to them. And then and we just kind of shared records over that whole period and everything. And I told the guys this, and then they got back in touch and said, well, we'll be the band, you know. And uh, anyway, because they're Blossoms and what have you, and we've got some lovely people around us, we get to do to do it on proper stages rather than doing it in the pub. <laughs> I, I would do it in the pub. I would genuinely do it in the pub. It was so I've, good. I've got a three-piece rock band with two friends where I play drums. We only do it for charity because we'd never get away with it if we didn't. I play drums and sing, and we just play from, like, the punk era from when the three of us were kids learning. We, we, we've met each other later in life, if you know, we didn't know each other's kids. Um, but we share a love for like, kind of like three chord nanky rock. And so we, we go and do that sometimes, you know. And I, I've played in Richmond, by the way, just Have so you, you know. Have you? I'm played in the, the church, next gig. Played, you know, in the church down at the bottom of the hill. Just yeah. Before, yeah, we played in the basement of that. And I had to stop a fight. <laughs> Middle-aged mums and dads in Richmond and I had what? to stop a fight. Yeah, it was in the middle of, I think it was in the middle of like, Something like Teenage Kicks or a Sex Pistols song that we were doing. And my mum was there as well, by the way. My mum's passed now, but my mum was there because she was down for this long weekend. And I said, look, when we're doing this, no, I'd love to come. I said, mum, you don't want to come to this, believe me. But she came. And um, yeah, so I do have a bit of a passion for doing things that have got nothing to do with my regular everyday musical whatever, just because I love it. I yeah. love it. So. It's about the music. Yeah. 
And that's, I want to get onto that in a minute as there's so much to say. Um, but first of all, I want to go back to this Blossoms moment mm. because like you say, it's formed for your, you know, your love of the Smiths and your yeah. love of just playing music yeah. at the end of the day. It's about the music mm. and appreciating a brilliant band like Blossoms. Mm. How did you view them in their career at the moment? They're in their 20s, they're yeah. at the peak of their career. How yeah. do you think it differed to when you were in your 20s going through that that craziness, travelling the world? There's a lot. I mean, there's, a, there's huge differences. Straight off, they're a band. They're a live band. I know they, they, you know they obviously record records, but they play a lot live. And when I had my break, it wasn't about playing live. It was about sending me around the world to go on TV because TV then was... All, all that mattered. Yeah. MTV obviously was massive. It was about television. Uh, we didn't have the internet, which if you think about that for a second is mind-blowing, <laughs> but we didn't. Oh, it was so lovely. Well, <laughs> it was so nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe, yeah. But but in terms of how people uh, found music and listened to music, it was MTV was a huge thing. You know, I mean, it was super cool and super, you know, everything. So, but going to, you know, wherever in the world uh, to go on a big Saturday night TV show, Friday night TV show, was all anybody was concerned about with someone like me because I was singing pop songs that didn't really fit into the kind of rock and roll, certainly didn't fit into... Festivals weren't a thing particularly at that time, anyway, unless you were a serious rock band. Um, so obviously they're a band, they make their own music. It's just very, very different. But also the main thing, I think, for me is the internet. A band like that, half their focus has to be about how would this come across not just from streaming, because that's just a way of actually listening to the music. It doesn't really matter that it's streamed or you play it on vinyl, whatever. But in terms of the perception of them, it's completely different, I think. And also because I was around at the end of the 80s when, when I kind of started, 87 first record. We'd been through a period in the 80s where it was so glamorous, it was unbelievable. But I'm talking about Simon Le Bon hanging off the front of a yacht in the Caribbean. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, whereas <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, but I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, you've also got the Smiths and you've also yeah. got other things which, which sort of counterbalance that. But I think the 80s definitely, from a video perspective, changed the way people perceived music and what they thought about it. I, I think it did anyway. And if you go back to like, I know, you know, the Beatles and old, old bands from that legendary, the Stones or whatever, they, they had films and footage of them performing but they didn't really per se make videos for every track. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. a, the 60s just weren't the same, the 70s weren't the same. It was when the 80s came in that that really kind of conquered it. And um, so I think for me, it was more about the look of it. Not, that, not, more, not more important than the music, but it was just massively important, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was very much driven by the industry, which from my understanding and the interviews that I've heard you do previously, yeah. when you decided to quit age mm. 27 in the mm. 90s, it was more to do with the fact that you were kind of sick of that side of it. And yeah, uh, I didn't feel like a musician. I felt yeah. like, I felt like a salesman, really. And nothing wrong with anybody who's a salesman or a saleswoman. That's that's a job, you know what I mean? But my my dream became my life, as it were. And it wasn't the dream I thought it was. It was just kind of like, what the hell is this, you know? And I was so far removed from making music most of the time. I mean, obviously, Stock Aitken, Waterman, Rock, Never Gonna Give You Up Together Forever. And they, you know, they're the biggest songs I've got. Um, I did write some of the songs on the second album. I actually had a couple of singles, and that was that came about under weird circumstances, really. But the truth of it was, I was fitting into something pretty much all the time. And even songs that I wrote uh, around that time, I was trying to please Pete Waterman. Really, I was trying to think, well, how am I going to? How, how do I move my elbows enough to get on this record mm. without me just singing on it? Um, and don't get me wrong, it's not like I'm not proud of them. As a kid writing songs, I am proud of them, and I still sing them live and all the rest of it. I don't just mean. They're big ones, the Stock Aitken Walkman, never going to give you up and what have you. I'm on about a song like She Wants to Dance With Me or Home In Your Arms, which I wrote. 
but I did write them within the confines of like being a 22 year old or whatever I was who just had this really big hit record never going to give you up and it's like well I'm not going to go and write death metal I'm not going to go and write something that's really kind of guitar led and this that and the other even though I'd been in bands who basically were it with we weren't death metal but we were very much Ooh. more a guitar band you know it was weird actually I was kind of almost chasing my tail all the time like trying to find out how do I fit into it and yet everyone thought I was the person at the front of it and I was but when you're with a production team like that not even not even that I even think Whitney Houston probably went through a bit of that because obviously she didn't write I don't think maybe any of her songs I don't know worked with some amazing people and great people and got some bangers there's no doubt about that and it's got a voice from heaven just absolutely incredible but what, how much she was in not in control because I think that's not it's not a very kind word to say control because it feels like people were controlling me they weren't they were just laying down the path for me do you know what I mean I just walked down it and I think I don't really do that anymore I kind of like I'm I'm sort of putting the bricks in the road for myself to walk down, which I really love, you know. Yeah, which you get from years of experience and yeah. wisdom and yeah. understanding the business and your own skill set. Mm. But back then, it is, I mean, I totally get it because I probably every few months go, I'm quitting, I can't do this anymore, right. yeah, yeah. I'm overwhelmed, it's yeah. all too much, mm. I just need some headspace. I yeah. really have a tendency to sort of freak out in that way. And I have actually jumped ship quite a few times with leaving Radio 1 and whatnot when I felt like, I can't be in that position anymore. Yeah, yeah. But at 27, that is quite extreme to go, not I'm taking a break, I'm yeah. quitting. Yeah, well, what do you think that reaction was about? Well, I'd got to a point where I was, I've still got a fear of flying. I don't like flying. I do yeah. it because obviously there's no other way really to get to certain places. But in Europe, I drive everywhere. So I've just driven to Hungary to do a gig. Wow. And from Hungary, I drove to Copenhagen to do one. And I'll be doing that for the foreseeable future. I think I do fly. And I'm flying to Ireland next week, actually, for a gig. But... I think I got to a point where I thought I've got a very young daughter and I am basically on the point of taking a pill and drinking to get on a plane. And I'm like, this is the beginning of books I've read. Or this is the end of actually books I've yeah. read thinking about it. And you think, that isn't good. And and I think I was trying to find a way to just sort of get past it and I wasn't doing very well at doing that. And I thought, well, the fear of flying is one thing and I've still got it, but... I don't think it was the... Somebody said to me, and I, I did quite a bit of therapy over it as well, and I don't know whether it was the therapist, or somebody said to me at some point, you basically just don't want to go there. It's not about the flying. And I said, no, it's about the flying. <laughs> but but I understood it, and I kind of started to take that on board and think, yeah, maybe you just don't want to do this anymore. And I don't think I did. I mean, I kind of... You know, I wasn't certainly anywhere near having anything like a peak or anything. I was kind of on the slippery slope down anyway, and I just thought, it's really hard. It's, and don't get me wrong, I don't mind things being hard, but you've got to love them. If they're hard, you have to love them to want to do it, don't you? Oh, absolutely. You, you, you can't be not in love with it and it hard. And, and I'll be crass as well. I've made money. I'm from a very working class town. I've had a working class upbringing. All, all my uncles on my dad's side pretty much had little businesses. My dad had a little business. I was always around people, for one, working hard, but also having a thing about money, understanding money a little bit, i.e. there is a tax man. VAT is a thing, da, da, da. and loads of musicians don't know that. Yeah, and it's the age-old thing. Footballs, I'm sure they do now, but footballs didn't know that. You know what I mean? They kind of had a football career, bought a pub, and lost it all. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And that's the age-old. And I kind of feel that I don't know really. I think having made some money, I kind of thought, okay, so I've got a beautiful daughter, beautiful partner, who's now my wife, and I can actually just kick back and enjoy this. I don't have to do this nonsense, and I wasn't enjoying it. So on the one end, I can understand that for a lot of people. 
perhaps it seems like a you know people have even used the word brave decision it's not brave it's just like this is an amazing alternative is to not do it anymore yeah i mean i i think um when people use that word it's it's it probably alludes to the fact that you had to overcome some fear because you had to overcome the financial fear. I'm from a working class background. I don't think you ever just feel like, ah, oh, everything's going to be okay forever. No. You've got that sort of ingrained yeah, yeah. in you, you from do, seeing yeah. your parents work yeah. hard or whatever. Mm. But I think also it having been your big dream for years mm. to make it in the mu music industry mm. and then having had that success and not just a little bit of success, global success, flying yeah. around the world, yeah. you know, number one in 25 countries mm. at one time. That is a lot to say goodbye to. And to make that decision, I think it might not be brave in your mind, but I yeah. think you have to push past that fear. Yeah, it's um, it, it's very seductive, I think, the music business. It really, really is. And, you know, like you only have to go to L.A. the first time in your life through music, let's say, where you go to a great hotel. And we used to stay at this hotel called the Sunset Marquee, which maybe you've been to yourself. You're, you're grinning, so I know you have. <laughs> and it's the, not debauchery. There's a bar in that hotel just, where I'm like... Yeah. I've yeah. got the shudders thinking about yeah. it. <laughs> but it, it's not like it's debauchery or it's this, that and the other. It's just one of the things I loved about it, and I still don't get over it today. If I walk past somebody that I... I mean, if I don't admire them or respect them or this... Respect's not right. I, I don't disrespect people. But I'm saying if, I don't, if they're not my thing, then I can look and go, oh, there's what's-her-name or what's-his-name. I can go, hmm. But if I kind of really like them and like their music, I get a bit tongue-tied and a bit like, Bleh. I just... I still do. And, and I find that weird considering I'm 57... I have met a lot of people who have had that emotion and feeling about because of the music they've made or something they've done. Um, and that place is just bonkers because, like, yeah. you two are sat having the breakfast. Depeche Mode have just got out of the pool. Robert Plant's sunbathing and listening to something. And Ozzy Osbourne's <laughs> ordering drinks in the bar. And you just <laughs> sort of like, great. Yeah, I fit right in here, everybody. This is great. I'm home. <laughs> I'm home. Um, so it was kind of weird, you know, but but it was exciting. And you kind of felt like, and, and like I say, um, and that isn't necessarily what it's about, but it's just stuff like that is really seductive. It really is. And you get to go on a big American TV show and that's really seductive. And you're in Japan and it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Of course it's amazing. Outside of the music, if you even if you were just part of the team going there, it would be amazing. But if you're the dude that has to do the interviews and be in the middle and the spotlight and the everything... It, it, it messes with your ego to such an extent that it's like it's a bit of a it's a it's a very hard balance I think really yeah. hard yeah. I think but that's why I think it's so remarkable because the whole thing that industry you know whether it's the industry that I move in or the music industry I think they're all quite similar in terms of they do mess you up if you're not really careful and you don't have good people around you or you're not self-aware or grounded and you know we've all made mistakes and experienced certain ups and downs within it but I think in if you're not on top of it, it will lead you mentally down a bad yeah. path. And I think that's why I often sit there and go, do I still want to do this? So I think it's rare mm. that you are, well, that you were able to give it up, but also come back to it in such a grounded way and navigate yeah. the bullshit side, but yeah. do the, the bit that you love. I do yeah. think that's remarkable. Well, I think things have changed a little bit anyway. The world obviously changes all the time and, and really quickly at the moment as well. So... Um, but I think when I kind of got back into singing, the, the way I did it was really strange. I met um, a guy called Simon Moran, who's a huge promoter and, you know, promotes massive gigs up and down the country. He's involved in managing bands and all kinds of things. Really great guy. He just happens to be from Warrington, which is what it says on my passport as well. And uh, we're about the same age and everything. And I met him in a pub in the um, 
uh, the pub in Putney called the Half Moon were. Oh back, yeah, you know, I've seen I went, gigs in there. Well, I, I went to a showcase. It was a Natasha Bedingfield showcase because some of my friends were working on her stuff. One of my best friends actually, and so I just went along just to to see her sing and all the rest of it and. And I ended up standing next to Simon at one point, and after the thing, you know, and she was great by the way. And after the thing, he sort of said, "So, why why aren't you singing anymore?" I said, "Oh, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm over it. It's a long time ago. I don't really." He said, "Well, you know, you should think about it. You know, if you ever want to go out and sing, I'll, I'll, I'll help you. I'll sort it out for you, kind of thing." And around this sort of same time, around let's say in the same sort of year period, I'd had some different offers to go and sing my old tunes and stuff in different parts of the world, and always just said no. And then I got this offer from Japan. And our daughter, who was about 15 at the time, 14, 15, loved anything about Japan, just anything. She's super creative. She, she's got a master's in art now. She's 31 now and all the rest of it. She's a garden designer now, but she anything creative, she loved it. So for her to go to Japan, that was like, she, her ears pricked up when like some, you know. And my wife had always really wanted to go because I went a bunch of times, but she never went. So they literally had me in the kitchen up against the kitchen cabinets <laughs> going like, come on. Because, <laughs> because all you've got to do is do like three shows and we get to be in Japan yeah, for two weeks. Yeah, let's do it. We'll stay for a week, you know. So around the time, and I can't remember exactly the timing of it, really. I maybe should get to the bottom of it one day. But um, uh, but Simon had kind of said, look, just go and sing anything. I don't care what it is. I'll put a band together or you can put the band, whatever you want. Just go and sing and see how you feel about it. So I said, well, I don't know whether I really want to go and sing my old songs because there's too much wrapped up in that to me to know whether I'm going to enjoy doing that. It's too, like... Do you know what I mean? It's like I haven't sung them for 15 years. Yeah. It's a bit weird to go and sing Never Gonna Give You Up because it's like... And also, I think even more time away from the 80s has just made the 80s a bit more comfortable for everybody, me included. <laughs> so, But at that time, let's say 10 to 12, 15 years after, it was still a bit like, yeah, but we're into the 90s now right now, or the thousands of... Whatever. But I just felt like, do I really want to sing that? And he said, well, you don't have to. Sing anything you want. And I just thought, well, I've always wanted to have a crack at... Loads of people have done it. Of course they have, and done it well. I'd love to go and sing some Sinatra stuff and just like some of the old standards that my dad used to sing around the house all the time. So I knew all the words to them. I just didn't know the right words. I knew my dad's words, right? Oh, so God. I would sing, yeah. So I had to relearn them properly. <laughs> and I did it on holiday in Sardinia once. We used to go there every year with some friends and their kids and everything. So I'd be walking up down this really long beach with my headphones in, singing to Frank Sinatra with my feet in the water kind of thing, relearning the right words. Because my dad used to sing, you make me feel so old, rather than so young. Um, <laughs> I love because it. that was his like, take on it. Anyway, um, so I went out and did that, and I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved the joy of just actually singing. It wasn't to do with being me again, or, you know, and I say me, I am me, but you know what I mean, that person yeah. who, you know. And then when I went to Japan, it was all about singing the 80s songs. That's all it was. It was totally like nostalgia, just go and sing them. And I kind of loved it. And I kind of thought, that's really weird. How have you just gone? And I said, well, because you're not promoting anything. You're not here to sell it. You're not even here to say, look, I'm coming back next year with a new record and I'm this, that, and the other. It's just like, I'm here to sing you some songs. It's like a giant karaoke, let's have a laugh. And that's what it was like. Yeah. And I think because our daughter was with us, it was a family trip to us. We actually saw some friends who, who lived in that, that part of the world as well and came for a week. And it was like, it was like skiving off. It was like sort of just like going doing a mad thing. And there was no plan to do it again. And I think that's the other thing. I think, and, and talking, listening to you talk about stuff sometimes about the way you've described it, when you can see it mapped out for you for quite a length of time, it's sometimes, even though you're loving it and enjoying it, you're like, yeah, it's too much. you know, it, it is. And, and that's, I think, the beauty of what I've had for the last sort of 10 years or so is I've kind of actually even been making new records again. And 
getting to play those songs live alongside my old songs without everybody going to the bathroom, which is amazing. And kind of like just, but also having in the back of my mind, I don't have to do it. Yeah. And I think when I was a kid and when I was like running around with that first couple of years doing it, I felt obligated for one. I felt I'm signed to RCA Records. That's Elvis and Bowie. How do I not, how do I say, how do I turn around to them and say, I don't want to do that TV. I don't fancy doing this either. I just did it. I did everything. They sent yeah. me a fuzzy fax with a thousand things on it in a hotel somewhere, and I just carried on doing them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How do you think that time affected you? Not only because it was unbelievably busy and there was a lot of travel involved mm. and you were being more of a salesperson than a musician, but mm. also the fame side of it. You know, I, I started in TV when I was 15 yeah. and I think it's a really weird paradox of you have to grow up really quickly because you're working primarily with adults yeah but you're also infantilized because everybody panders to you and tries yeah. to look after you Absolutely. so you you kind of don't sit anywhere age-wise that's no. how i personally experienced well, it well bizarrely i am now the oldest person in the band and crew <laughs> and i was always the youngest yeah. person in the band and crew um but also with the people i traveled with and i had a tour manager um well tour manager he was he was you know, he was like almost like my dad to some degree and my best mate as well, um, who became my manager in the end, a guy called Tops, and he travelled with me all the time. Thankfully, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't do drugs, he doesn't this. So in lots and lots of ways, we had a riot together. He was He's probably 15 years older than me, something like that. He's from Liverpool. And we just, we actually, he made it fun a lot of the time, even though I was ready to like, you know, just jack it in, I think, way before. He kind of made it bearable, I think. And so like when we did go to LA for a couple of weeks to do promotion and stuff, not even gigs, just promotion, we sort of turned it into a mini holiday whenever we could. Do you know what I mean? And I think he treated me like a human and he treated me like on a level par in terms of like our humanness. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes it used to freak me out that like people would prioritize me so much that it made me feel like I was made of like porcelain or something or, or and, and almost just not like a person. And I understand it. And it, and on the one hand, I can totally understand that they were they were trying to just treat me nicely and do all the, the best things they could for me. But it did make me feel kind of a bit useless at times. Um, I remember Paul Young, as in Paul Young, wherever I lay my hat and all those amazing songs that he sang. I remember reading something where he said once, he walked out of a restaurant. He was so used to people paying the bill, he just walked out of it without paying. Because... <laughs> Because everyone does everything yeah. for you. And he kind of realized, like, oh, something's got to change here. This yeah. is a bit, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it, I think being at the center of something like that is pretty amazing. But it, as we've as we've seen over the decades, it's also extremely dangerous for people's health and can lead to the ultimate sacrifice, which is where 
people top themselves or, yeah. they, or, or they lose themselves completely to drugs and alcohol and God knows what, you know. But that's why I think it's incredibly sensible that at the age of 27, which is extremely young, you made that choice because... Sounds boring though, doesn't it? It doesn't sensible. sound boring at all. Okay. I think it's incredibly so sensible. I folded my arms, you see, in protectiveness <laughs> like... <you know? laughs> no, I think it's brilliant because... On a societal level, we are told that fame and travel and money and famous yeah. people is what yeah. we should be aiming for. And it's yeah. everything. But you, having come from a working class background mm. and experiencing that to the extreme, mm. made a decision that it wasn't the be all and end all. Well, bizarrely, I actually, even though I'm the guy who sang Never Gonna Give You Up and I'm in the video for Together Forever and all those things, right? That is who I am. I'm not denying that. And I don't ever deny it when we play live. I, I, would not, I wouldn't dream of not playing those songs. I wouldn't dream of it. Unless we were just playing the new album in full for a bizarre night or yeah. whatever. Because that is part of my... And never going to give you... It's part of my DNA. It's part of who I am. It totally is. It, it's, it's given me an amazing life and still does. So I don't want to deny it. I quite like singing it, to be honest. I know that sounds weird to people, but I do because it's like I just see the kind of mad joy in people's faces of like, oh, right, you know, it's weird. It's a weird experience. But anyway, but as a kid, all I wanted to do, really, I was a drummer when I started and I just wanted to be in bands and play and really be good at that. And I don't think I really wanted to be like what I sort of became, which was kind of a pop star. Um, I never really considered myself a pop star because I looked around me and saw better ones and people doing really well at it, you know, be, really being a pop star. And I don't think I really was. I, anyway, that's another story. But well, I think people are good at pretending to be pop stars. Yeah, maybe. But maybe no one maybe. actually feels like they maybe. are. Maybe. You know what? That's probably a lot closer to the truth, yeah. And I wasn't very good at pretending. I think I just looked like a grumpy northerner on a couch <laughs> being interviewed. Do you know what I mean? Why doesn't he smile more? I think um, everyone's really good at pretending because I felt like it so many times when I've seen other presenters or I don't yeah. even know what I do these days, but yeah. I'll look to other people and think, God, they've got their shit together and they look yeah. like they're really at home here. And I never quite feel that. Or maybe I do when I've created my own job but when I'm going to do something for other people people are good at faking it but I think that you've just kind of it one of the nails on the head there where you say you've created yeah. that job so if, if it's coming from you then then it is a huge part of you and you can see and feel the comfortable parts of it and even though some of it I'm sure is still uncomfortable when you do it you understand why you're doing it because you're driving it because you've got this yeah. thing that you, that you want to fulfill and I think that is that's kind of what artists do that's what creative people do, isn't it? They they have a thing and then they want to see that to the end, you know yeah. what I mean, and see it become something. So, and I think, like I say, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm really glad I met Stock Aitken Mortimer when I did. I really am. I'm glad they wrote Never Gonna Give You Up. I, there isn't a day go by that I don't think that. But I would have loved to have been more involved in some of the early records that I made as an actual musician and, and a what have you, but I probably just wasn't up to it at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's awesome that you can have that sort of level of reflection now mm. and see where it's taken you and that you've yeah. learned the lessons to to be t totally in control creatively yeah. to where you are today. So looking back to your childhood, you've yeah. sort of alluded to having this influence from your siblings mm. They and you lived in between sort of Manchester and Liverpool. So you've got this amazing yeah. concoction of music going on yeah. at the time in that area. Yeah. What led you to think, right, I'm going to pick up drumsticks? Why was it the drums that led you down I'm that I'm not path? sure because I sang a lot at school and I was in the church choir and my mum and dad divorced when I was about four we lived at my dad's house, um, all four kids do, did. My sister's 10 years older, so when I was, she was 14, 15, 16, she left home about 16, I think. And my dad wasn't a happy camper at all, really. Um, they'd had a son who'd passed away as well. This is before I was born and before... Uh, sorry, I'll explain this. So it's Jane, John, 
And in between them, they had a son called David and he had died. So then they had Mike, my brother, and then myself after David had died. And, but they never talked about it ever. There's one picture of him in the house. Um, and I had to struggle to find that. It was in a book buried somewhere, if you know what I mean, in, in a photo book. No one would ever talk about it. No, So for us, he was he was literally a ghost anyway, but he was a ghost. And it was very, very strange. And I think it kind of obviously destroyed them. They carried on. They had two more kids, but I think they were done anyway. And I think also, and I can sp speak freely about it because my mum's passed away and my dad's passed away. I think my mum was just, just had a breakdown, really, and just went off and just, you know, and, and came back. But definitely, I think she just kind of lost it a bit. And I think my dad was just angry and sad and um dark a lot of the time so i didn't really want to be in the house much anyway if i'm honest so i wanted to be at school singing i wanted to be in the church choir and doing other stuff and i've painted that picture as like my dad was also that was the weird thing he would also come home sometimes singing frank sinatra or some whatever whistling totally joyful uh with a bag of sweets he picked up from you know the shop on the way home for us or whatever do you know what I mean he what he totally was that guy and I remember him showing us a lot of love as well but you just never knew what you were going to get and bizarrely I've picked up a bit of that from him which I hate about myself but at least I know it's there so I try and try and balance that out if I can but I'm sure our daughters had to go through a bit of that as well but I think so the do thing you mean is, so your moods can just slip yeah, but I'm a lot better than he was, definitely. I mean, I think he had no control over it whatsoever, like none. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, to be honest, I mean, in reflection, he probably would have been diagnosed with something. Yeah. And I just don't think the, even the word diagnosis wasn't even a word anybody no, used, no, you know, no. about anything. No. But what was amazing, because I had two older brothers and an older sister, they played a lot of music in the house, like a lot. So my sister literally drowned me in, like, from the Beatles through prog rock, you know, early Genesis and Yes and all of that. So, and she'd take me to a couple of gigs when I was about 10, I think as a fashion accessory, really. Like, it was cool to take your 10-year-old <laughs> brother. So I saw, like, Supertramp was the first gig I saw in Manchester, and it just blew me away. And I just, something inside of me just thought, that is a great place. Being on a stage, even if it's, like, in the village hall or at the school or what have you, is quite a nice place to be. And I, And to this day... Bizarrely, people say to me, um, are you not nervous when you get away? You're not when I'm like, no, I've got the mic. It's my stage for an hour or how long they give you. It's mine. I'm, I'm good here. I made all the decisions with the band. You know what I mean? And I think it's kind of, it's a safe space, actually. Um, and so I think early on something, I don't think I could have written that out for you and said, that's why I want to do this. But just being on a stage, and, and ironically, bizarrely, being on a stage, but behind a drum kit's even better. Why is that? Because you're in it and you're involved, but you can hide behind the cymbals when it's not going mm. so great. Or you don't. And I used to sing from drums, even in the, the band I was in at school. But you're just that bit more protected as well. You're not. You're not that vulnerable. You're not right at the front. No one can like. You know, they can't even touch you. No. Literally and you've got can't sticks touch in your hand. And you've, you've got, got sticks weapons. in your hand. Weapons. Do you think, yeah. I mean, it's it sounds like music for maybe you and your siblings was a mm. real like tonic if there was this sort of, even if you're unknowingly experiencing that sort of pain no, in the household. Totally because when you grow up, 
whatever your normal is, is just your normal. You don't know yeah. any different. But I guess as a, you know, no, 100% at the was. age you're at now, you can look back and reflect and see that music was yeah. actually a balm to what totally. was going on at 100%. home. So that's why I'm imagining when you get on a stage, that feels like your safe space. Yeah, you're maybe, untouchable there. maybe even, yeah, there's probably uh, like an elation in it that, that I felt. Well, just as well, I'm, I don't want to paint my dad as a monster. He wasn't a monster. He was just very upset and very sad and needed help, really. But for instance, if we were playing loud music and we heard, he used to have a pickup truck because he had a little garden centre thing. And um, he, it was a, uh, a Volkswagen pickup truck, which makes the same noise as a Volkswagen, old Volkswagen Beetle does. So we, we heard the noise like 500 yards away from mm. before he got to the house. So we'd turn the music off. There's no way we'd be playing music when my dad got right. home because we didn't know what mood he'd be in. And he, he didn't really like, he hated pop music and he hated accountants. My brother's a chartered accountant. And, <laughs> and, I, uh, and um, I'm, I'm more, more, What an act of, rebe- of rebellion. I yeah, love it. Yeah. Well, I don't think, with, yeah, it just turned out that way, I think. But um, yeah, funny old thing. He, I think he hated accountants because he, he liked having his own little business, but he hated the kind of paperwork for it, if you know what I mean. He just, you know. Um, yeah. But anyway, I think, I think music definitely was a huge thing in our house. My mum also was an amazing piano player, but she just, she kind of did it when she was really young. And then when she was in her late 40s, maybe even her 50s, she used to go and accompany one of her friends and they'd play like classical and she used to sing like operatic things at, at do's, you know what I mean? And and then she kind of accepted this thing to go and play in kind of what was like a wine bar sort of thing, but, you know, not like a fancy one, but a what have you. And at first she said, I can't do that. I'm a middle-aged woman. I can't be doing that, you know, but she did it. And she kind of loved it. And then she basically packed her job in. She used to work in a little office. And she used to play the piano four or five nights a week. Wow. And she'd go and play like in a snug in a pub. And basically it was just like that her circle of friends would just go to that and they'd just sing songs and my mum would play the piano. It's in your bones. Sort of. I've had it. I'd covered When I Fall in Love on my first album, um, which is, you know, a classic, beautiful song. And I kind of murdered it. But anyway, still like singing it. But I got my mum on stage with me at uh, the race course up in uh, Haydock Park, which is where, very close to where I'm from. And she got up on stage and played it a couple wow. of times when I went up there, yeah. So, what a beautiful moment. Yeah. And what was your relationship like with her? Because, I mean, it's it's still sort of strangely unusual for people to live with the dad totally. if mum and dad have divorced. Very. But back then, I'm imagining yeah. it was extremely unusual. It was. I mean, it was unusual for parents to divorce. I think yeah. there was only a couple of kids in our school who had divorced parents. Um, I think looking back, I didn't know this at the time, but I think looking back, I think mum went through a bit of a breakdown and just couldn't deal with anything. I'm saying that, I mean, I, I don't know that. I was a really young child, but, um, and I think they had a very, very, very strange, uh, like they never spoke again ever. Really? Yeah. And the only time I've ever seen my dad in the same building is when he gave my sister away at the wedding. That's the only time I've ever seen them in a building together since I was four. Wow. So they weren't, like on speaking terms or anything so it was a bit weird and I used to spend the weekends with my mum and I used to spend five days a week at my dad's place and go to school the school literally was 40 yards away from where we lived I could have jumped over our back garden wall into school actually but I never did because I had to go through the front gate so I just think there were a lot of things my dad got a housekeeper which sounds ever so posh but it wasn't um a lovely lady called Mrs Hill who was there first thing in the morning and was there when I came home from school because I was five, you know, yeah. I mean, and he had a little business to run. So, yeah, I did see my mum a lot. Um, and I was very close to my mum, I think, when I was very young. And then, like most people, you kind of drift a little bit in your teens because who wants to be with your parents and you're a teenager? Um, 
How old are your kids? Sorry, what I'm just saying now. No. <laughs> They're yeah. eight and ten. I'm not okay. the teens yet. Yeah, okay. I'm not there yet. I'm okay. not there yet. Um, but that, that happens. They come back, thankfully. Yeah, they do yeah, come back. Yeah. Um, I'm preparing for it. Yeah, they come back. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't... It, 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 I mean, listen, of course, it's all relative. People have a lot worse stories than mine. Of course they do. But it's relative and it's how it affects you and, what, and how you deal with that and what you want to make of your life. And bizarrely, my brothers and my sister were all in over 30 year relationships with our partners and i kind of think is that is that what is that yeah it could be a reaction to it or yeah, yeah or it's, it's just or, i don't know i don't want to read too much into that but i just kind of think maybe we all just said you know what we're just not going down that road one yeah. way or another, so I know you said that, you know, people have worse off situations. Mm. You know, that we we can all certainly say that about lots of things in our yeah. lives. But I think it's actually so helpful to hear, you know, now that you're a, an adult, mm. that you can look sort back of. at that time yeah. <laughs> in, in ways. Mm. But you're an adult and you can look back and go, OK, this was my childhood. You can look at it objectively yeah. and, and you can still navigate life just fine. Because I think... Not only for people that have had parents that have divorced, but also for people who are going through a divorce with yeah. kids. That yeah. worry is yeah, yeah. huge yeah. of how it's going to impact the children yeah. and also trying to navigate it peacefully. Yeah. And, you know, your parents didn't necessarily do that, not talking. They didn't, but I don't have any blame for them. I mean, I think, and again, I think losing a child in the way that they did to meningitis and what have you, and it was just, obviously I wasn't there, but I'm saying I can only, I can't even imagine that. And I can't imagine what that does and... And I think, so I have no blame for them for just not keeping it together and managing to get through it or anything. Of course I don't. And I don't have any blame for my dad being a miserable git and who, who was extremely dark and he wasn't violent to us. He hit me twice and once I really deserved it, once I didn't. Um, and, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was angry and violent, but not to us. So he smashed a lot of stuff in front of us. He couldn't control his temper. But like I say, today, somebody would diagnose him and say, you need some real help, my friend. And in those days, that, that you just didn't, didn't get exist. that. So I think, I think we are in better times in terms of people being more open and talking about stuff. Um, and it's super, super important. The weird thing is, it's taken us hundreds, if not thousands of years to get to a point where people will sit down and talk about stuff that we've all just put under a carpet. It's really strange. It's I don't know wild. whether I don't know whether maybe it, people did many, many, many decades ago, and maybe the Victorian era became this time when everyone went, "Nope, we don't talk about anything. We've got a stiff upper lip. We just get on with it." And and also maybe we're in a weird time where, wow, this is deep. Here we go. Um, maybe we're in a time where we haven't had like you know we haven't had a world war for a long time. We haven't had that global conflict of this, that, and the other. Or I know we've got some terrible things going on right now, and I'm aware of that, obviously. But I'm saying, I just think we are in um, we're in very different times, and I think I think we have other things that are very daunting and like very with us all the time. You know, social media and all those different things yeah. like that that I'm not I'm a fan of in a way that the connectivity and it makes me laugh every time I see a kitten video and all of those things, and I see some great stuff on there. But I'm also a little bit not paranoid, but I'm a little bit worried about it. I think, especially with younger kids, you know, yep. um, our daughter's 31. She's of that generation, but she wasn't smothered in it. She had a phone. I don't know when she got the first phone, to be honest. And I don't know when we allowed her just to go on the internet herself, but she's, she's sort of one foot in both worlds. You know what I mean? Of like, 
She no, I'm was, scared of it. I'm yeah. scared of it. I've got young kids, and I think with AI and yeah. just the level of surveillance and everything, yeah. it is scary. And I think yeah. you, you know, you're right. We we've perhaps got less to deal with in terms of like if you look back to some of our grandparents. If your grandparents were, you know, born in the UK, yeah. you went through the war, which yeah, yeah. mine certainly did. Yeah. And my nan, who had you know not good mental health, and I've talked about it on this podcast mm. before, was absolutely traumatized from being evacuated yeah, and all yeah, that stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, that won't be in everyone's lineage, but I can certainly relate to that. Yeah. But I think, you know, we are trying to, I guess, unpick that generation or our parents' generation yeah. who didn't talk. It's like and- a waterfall and it never stops. Yeah, it just yeah. keeps running and running and running and hopefully it kind of filters and, and slows down a bit. But... You, we do get it from our parents who got yep. it from their parents and their parents and, that, and it just keeps going. So I, it's, yeah. I sometimes you, wonder, make... like, are our kids going to go, oh, you guys talked way too much. Yeah, We're exactly. going to pull it in a bit. <laughs> exactly. Like, you went the other way <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Just put it under the carpet and let's move <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. So, look, you've got, a, you've got mm. an incredibly busy rest of your year because yeah. you've got the album out in October. Yeah, You're indeed. going on tour again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> when things start to get busy again yeah. and it could... You could get a big fax through saying, here's what you're doing for the rest of the year. Do you feel overwhelmed? If so, how do you navigate that piece for me? Not in the same way at all, because if I'm going to be blunt about it, I I have some success with, you know, the last couple of records in this country. And that's been absolutely... Your last album went number one. And it's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing. So don't... And I'm unbelievably grateful for it. I really am. But back in the day, that kind of happened everywhere. And so I don't go everywhere. I go to a lot of places to do gigs, but that's more about, yeah, a bit of nostalgia and a bit of this, that and the other. And I think festivals think, well, we can put Uncle Rick on as well, can't we, at three o'clock, you know? <laughs> so um, so I, I do travel a lot. You know, I've been to South America a bunch of times, which I never used to go to. I've been all over Asia, Australia, loads of places, America. But with in terms of promoting a record, it's pretty much about doing it in the UK. So... It's not nowhere near as daunting, and I don't do that many interviews. And obviously, podcasts have become a thing now, and you must be aware of it when you talk to people. It's very different. It's not the same. It, I know it is sort of an interview, but it's sort of a chat, really. And I also think it's kind of, it's just a very different comfort level. I think interviews sometimes you can be so guarded. Because, well, this paper are going to interview and that interview is coming to do it, that journalist, what have you. And you're like, oh, right, I better be on my, uh, you know what I mean? I've, I've got to get ready for that, you know what I mean? And I think with podcasts, I'm very much more, we're just going to have a chat. Yeah. It's so much nicer. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. It's so much nicer. If you've got to fly yeah. in, for this tour or for any promotion, mm. what do you do to get prepped for that fear? Um. I'm not so bad with it. I mean, my wife not, might not agree with you, but um, I'm not. A, I, to be honest, I drink alcohol, not to the point of like where I'm like comatosed, but I'll have a couple of cocktails in in the bar or the airport or the what have you, and I just think it'll be all right. Yeah. And then I kind of do it. And I sometimes, if I'm going to the states or something, then I, I very often take something to sleep because I've seen all the movies anyway, and I don't I don't want to be on a plane for twelve hours anyway. Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of like it. yeah. I'll just, well, I'll just do that. So I try and sleep for as much as I can. And the weird thing is sometimes I get on a flight and I'm absolutely fine. And other times I'm very much not fine. And so my thing is I just try and kind of keep the amount that I do down so that I'm not faced with that thing of like it being like, you know, I mean, back in the day, it was just ludicrous. It was ludicrous. I'd sometimes would fly, aren't I rock and roll or rock and pop? I would sometimes fly in the morning 
and fly at night. Mm. And after doing three or four years of that, or five years even, I don't know, whatever, you just think, this just doesn't, you know. And I don't know. I think the flying thing, like I say, was a symptom of me not wanting to do it anymore, really. So, and I have tried lots of things. I've been hypnotized a bunch of times. I try and, I don't know about meditate exactly, but I try and focus on certain things and all the rest of it. Um, I'm not afraid of having a few drinks because I don't seem to have a problem with alcohol. I can stop drinking if I want to. Not very often, but I can I can do it. I like a drink, you see. I don't mean like I like a drink. I like to get hammered. I love wine. I love beer. I can't think of a nicer thing than calling one of my friends. I've got a friend, Simon, who lives literally around the corner and saying, should we just have a quick one in the pub? Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's like, and it, because it's about... It, uh, don't get me wrong. The times in my life I have had more than two glasses on my own, I can't even count them. Yeah. But if someone else is there, I'll share a bottle of wine with someone, no problem. As long Lovely. as it's a good bottle of wine, by the way. I'm not drinking your rubbish no more. <laughs> uh, I know I'm Northern Oik, but I'm still well, drinking decent wine. I saw on your wine. Instagram, you're not actually using your vocal booth at home you created in your studio to yeah, sing in. You've used it to store wine. I know, I know. And um, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, I know. But Well, it does because actually it's in a garage no heat gets to it and no sunlight gets to the outside of it. It never gets warm, but it never gets really cold. Perfect. And I just realised a friend of mine who knows about wine was sort of going, that's where you want to put your wine, mate. So I'm yeah. like, okay, that's where it's going. That's where so, it is. So, that go, yeah, so the vocals don't ever get done in there. Occasionally I go in there and pretend I'm going to do them in there, but I don't really. Have a glass of wine instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, look, wishing you all the Thank love you. and luck with your album you, and your you. tour. It's been you. a bloody joy to talk to you today. Thank you, and Rick. And you, my love. Thank you. Oh, blimmin' what a lovely bloke Rick is. I just loved that chat. What a bloody good egg he is. Thank you so much for popping over to mine for a chat, Rick. I really appreciated it. Rick's new album, Are We There Yet?, is out on October the 13th, so make sure you set yourself a reminder for that one. And his UK tour kicks off in November. And also, have you listened to the Billy Porter episode from a couple of weeks ago? Oh, He was just another brilliant person to talk to. He also had some really cool insights into how the music industry's changed in the last 30 years. So if you've missed it, definitely go back and give it a go. I am back next week, of course, but in the meantime, come and say hi on Instagram. We're at Happy Place Official. Until then, a huge thanks again to Rick, to the producer, Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and as always, the biggest thanks to you beauties. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com